Hello, and welcome to episode 74 of The Cognicast, a podcast by Cognitech Inc. about software and the people that create it. I'm your host, Craig Andera. All right, I want to mention a bit about Closure West, specifically sponsorship opportunities at Closure West. We have a couple different ways people can get involved in sponsorship of Closure West. First of all is if your organization would like to sponsor the conference itself, um, you can find out information about how to do that at closurewest.org sponsorship. Really great way to get your name in front of the Closure community. Um, got obviously quite a few enthusiastic closurists at at the conference, and if you want to reach out to them and make them aware of your company, it's a good way to do that. Um, the other thing that you can do, either as a company or as an individual, is to sponsor the Opportunity Grant Program, um, and you can find information about that at the conference website. You'll also be able to make a donation to the Opportunity Grant Program, which is aimed at um, enabling people in underrepresented groups that would not otherwise be able to attend the conference to go, um, and you'll be able to make a donation on the event uh, bright registration page for the conference when you're signing up. So look for that when you're getting your tickets if you haven't done that already. Um, also in Closure West news, very shortly here, I'm not sure if this will happen before or after this episode goes out, but uh, at any rate, shortly um, we will be announcing the speakers. And of course, we're very excited about the lineup. Uh, lots of good stuff in the pipeline. Uh, keep an eye on the website for that. Okay, so I want to mention a few other things. I want to also uh, make sure to point out that uh, these things are not um, Cognitech affiliated. Just want to make sure we don't take credit for them. Uh, but we do like to point out, um, you know, just a few closure-related events or Datomic-related or just things that are interesting in general uh, around the world. Um, if you want to make us aware of your event and make it easier for us to find you so that we can possibly mention you, you can contact us at podcast at Cognitech.com, and of course, we're also uh, welcome. Uh, we're, you're also welcome to send us any comments or suggestions you have at that address as well, or on Twitter at Cognitech. Anyway, want to mention um, the Atlanta Closure Meetup Group. They meet monthly on the second Tuesday, uh, starting at 6:30, uh, with presentations that start at seven. Um, you can find them at Meetup.com/atl-clj. Uh, there's the Closure Users Group of Sao Paulo and Rio de Janeiro. Uh, they meet uh, on Thursday, March 5th at the New Bank. This is 2015, I always got to remember to mention that. At the New Bank headquarters in Sao Paulo, uh, Brazil. Um, in Cincinnati, here in the United States again, the Cinci, Cinci, I don't know how to say it, I can only read it. Funk, anyway, that word, Functional Programmers Group, they meet monthly on the second Tuesday at 6.30 at Pinnacle Solutions Group. Um, you can find them on the web at Cinci, I'm going to assume that is, S, uh, sorry, rather, cincyfp.wordpress.com slash where, W-H-E-R-E. Um, and also want to mention there's an upcoming Closure Bridge event in Minneapolis, which is my hometown. Um, that's March 6th and 7th, um, and you can find out more about that at the Closure Bridge website, uh, www.closurebridge.org. Um, so just a few events going on around the world, lots of good stuff. Uh, we'll mention more in future episodes, but I think that'll do it for now. So we will go on to episode 74 of the Cognicast. Let's go ahead and uh, and begin. 
Um, great. So, welcome everybody to the Cognicast. Today is Friday, January 23rd in the year 2015. And our guest today is Aaron Brooks. Welcome to the show, Aaron. Hey, thanks, Greg. Uh, it's really great to have you. We'll get into more about uh, why in a minute. As I warned you, we do start out with a question, uh, which is a question of uh, really a kind of about art, like some experience of art you have had, either either creating or or consuming or, or otherwise, some kind of artistic experience that, that you think might be um, worthy to share with our listeners. I wonder if you could provide us something like that. Sure. So I'm going to take a sort of oblique approach to your question and uh, share an experience that involves art and learning. And uh, that would be in high school, my high school German teacher, uh, Gene Delp, uh, was a phenomenal teacher. He, he uh, took four years of high school German and uh, managed to compress them uh, into three years without losing anything. I mean, uh, we had a, a fantastic German prep. Um, and he, then he took the fourth year and he split it into two halves. The first half, he did college-level German literature. And the second half, just because he could, he uh, spent teaching art history and art appreciation. And it was a, a really fantastic experience on a number of levels. He went in, into great depth. We had uh, a couple of field trips. And because the setting was, you know, not it wasn't obligatory as, as a art course per se, but it was part of his whole learning experience. It was really fantastic, and I, I think the people who were in that class got a, a tremendous amount out, and I, I know I did. And it was it was a, a very uh, natural sort of setting to you know just continue you know here's German literature, here's you know the history of art, and uh, you know different pieces and different styles and so on. And the prep was was uh, so thorough that when I took a college level art course a number of years later. I, I didn't learn that much, and, and that actually may have to do with two other things, uh, which was the fact that the uh, college-level course was right after lunch, and it's really, really <laughs> difficult to concentrate on you know, Caravaggio's early uh, explorations into tenebrism in a darkened room right after lunch. <laughs> Not a great setting. Also, that was the, the class where uh, I met my, my wife-to-be, so that was uh, perhaps another distraction. That's but. an excellent excuse, though. <laughs> I remember I had a, I had a a class a circuits class in college, and it was it was at ten a.m. which at MIT is considered a pretty early class, <laughs> um, right. and I had hockey I would play hockey at eight o'clock in the morning and this class had um, it had a, t- a midterm which was like thirty five percent of your grade and then a final which was like sixty percent and the other five percent was homework or something, and I hadn't done very well in the midterm and this hockey thing was was in October through November. So I would go get up super early for by by the school standards, right? Like at 7.30, go play hockey for an hour. And then not too long after that, go to class and sit down. And having done poorly, I'm like, I really got to concentrate. I fell asleep in class every single day during November, like every day. And so coming up to the final, I was like, oh my gosh, how much more screwed could I be? So I, I kind of understand about the the darkened room effect. I darkened it with my eyelids, but it was the same type of thing. So that sounds really cool, actually. But, but, let's, but let's turn to, uh, to matters um, uh, nerdly in other ways. And before we do that, I suppose, um, having shared this really cool story, maybe we should also introduce you more generally to people who may not know you. Sure. Uh, I, I work at uh, Viasat. Uh, I think you've recently spoken to a couple of my coworkers, uh, Mike Dragales being one of them. Mm-hmm. And I've got into closure pretty early through uh, Chowser, 
Chaucer and I went to school together and uh, a gaggle of us uh, were exploring language design and uh, he came across closure and shared it with the rest of us. So I guess that's probably <laughs> probably yeah. sufficient. Are you looking for more? No, no, no. That's, that's great, actually, um, because uh, I think the thrust of our conversation will probably be something that uh, doesn't bear t- too much on your employment. I think people know you're a closure programmer working at, in, in what my in my opinion, is one of the one of the fortunately blossoming number of organizations that have a really impressive set of, of closure programmers at it. But, but so this comes back, the episode comes back to a conversation that you and I had um, at Strangeloop. Loop. Um, was was fun. I wish I had gotten to hang out with you a bit more, but you're like, we were talking and you're like, hey, I have a thing that I think would be fun to talk about. And, and, and you mentioned it and I was like, well, yeah, we should definitely do that. We're only now getting around to it. So you're here several months later, but maybe you could share with our audience uh, this, this idea, this concept, this... Um, approach that we briefly discussed at Strangeloop. Sure. Fortunately, I came up with a, what I think is a better name, which is live specification. Mm. Um, I think at the time I said it was uh, like spec as truth. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the problem is that very often we write specifications, if we write them at all, and they get half written because we don't have all the requirements, we, we're not thinking about you know, all the implementation details, and then we get busy writing you know, whatever it is we're writing, and the specification rots. You know, it it, it uh, is disjoint from the actual implementation, and so it's it's pretty much useless. It's it's almost used as a as a crutch for getting things started. But specifications can be a lot more useful, and so I think it's useful to sort of look at the degrees to which we specify things and what sort of things get specified. So, in in let's say class zero, we have no separation between the let's call them business rules or business logic of our program and the program itself. So, you know, buried somewhere in my code, I have, you know, if, uh, you know, X equals 42, then, you know, do whatever. And, you know, maybe, maybe I've got a comment there, or maybe it's just this bare number and, you know, somebody comes across later and, you know, what does this mean? What, why why did, how do we get here? Yeah. What does Um, this program do? Well, read the source. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, we try to pull those out. And so, you know, uh, one one way that you'll see these are you know global defs depending on the language vars or whatever um, and that's that's helpful because that helps us separate out the logic of our program and you know these sort of external parameters to it but that's still not great you know that's not not uh, for one the global variables tend to prevent us from running multiple instances and so then you know, we might be a little bit more functional and you know create some sort of configuration map or something that we we pass through a program that has these. And, and the, the live specification idea is, is um, similar to literate programming. So literate programming, you're putting the specification of your program in the text of your, your source code. And you know, it's, it's, it's there to help explain what, what your purpose is and what you're doing. But there's a couple of problems with that approach. Uh, one of the problems is that very often the, the specification might be for multiple components of your your system and by you know putting it in this library this this subpart for when you've put it in a particular language context so it's in you know some source file but it might apply to other other uh, files in other languages and it it puts things in the domain of programmer tools so it's primarily it's it's easy for us as programmers to sit down and open up a source file and edit you know specification or you know documentation that's in the source file. But that's very far away from, you know, a lot of project owners or project managers or, you know, people who are uh, less comfortable using programming tools. 
it also usually is implemented in a way that is either using like doc strings or comments in the file. And so syntax highlighting and editing is a secondary sort of experience. So I, I came across uh, this live specification at a company I worked at uh, several companies backed. Um, it was a Linux-based uh, high-performance computing, supercomputing startup uh, called SciCortex. And at SciCortex, we had a specification. It was written in Lix, which is a uh, dialect of LaTeX. Mm. And it has one of the benefits of Lix is that it has a, a nice uh, WYSIWYG-ish sort of editor and, and makes it more accessible to, to less technical users. But the spec was... You know, you had you had the pros describing how how things, you know, why things were the way they were, and then the specification had tables and uh, outlines of of structure uh, that represented the 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 actual specification. And we had a series of tools, and because this was a bunch of years ago, the tools were primarily in Perl, um, but the the tools would uh, capture these tables and turn them into data structures that we could then use as part of our build process uh, to, to build C headers and uh, components of the kernel, uh, drivers, user space libraries, performance tools, debug tools, verification tools, things that would actually generate into Verilog that would go into the chip itself. And so our build process started with the specification and it was fanned out in maybe 20 different directions to all the different downstream things that could care about how big a, a, an address range was or what the register mass looked like or you know, what the instruction value was. And so this is in a, a hardware chip specification. So we had a lot of you know, single values or, or ranges of values. So, so that, that particular implementation had, had sort of a, I think a, a different flavor than maybe a lot of purely software implementations would. But it was incredibly valuable for one, the spec being this living document, it was the source of where things were. So you're constantly going back to it. You know, anytime you needed to make some sort of specification level change, you were in that spec document. And uh, it made people very inclined to update the prose part. So the, the spec wasn't just, you know, written and rotting. People were constantly coming back to it. And I think that led to several effects. One is, you know, it was, it was, it was kept up to date. But people cared for it, and, and their, I guess, emotional connection to it was much more favorable. You know, instead of being this hated thing, you know, with dry, boring text, it was there was parts that were full of humor and insight, and it was it was actually a, a valuable thing to read and and uh, have the opportunity to go back and, and read through it a couple of times after the company was over. Um, <laughs> so this build process allowed us to do things. That, that helped us avoid errors. Uh, so, for example, we had a meeting, and in the meeting, we decided that the uh, amount of I/O space that the, the at the chip level was being allocated to, to wrap, mapping I/O regions uh, was too small, and that we should extend it by another bit, doubling the size. And so, you know, after we made this meeting, had this meeting, made this fairly large architectural decision. You know, one person had the job of going out, editing. I think it was two characters in the spec. And that was the last time we thought about it, <laughs> uh, because in the next build cycle, everything got built, and all the performance tools, and all the debug tools, and everything, absolutely everything, was up to date. You know, as soon as we made the change, and so there were whole classes of errors that we were able to avoid by uh, taking this sort of approach, where you know the spec generated things. So um, 
I think I mentioned that that you know we're we're I'm I'm still interested in pursuing this and and uh, it's it's hard to bring this into a project after the fact you know after it's already going because usually the uh, details of the the spec are are already spread and you have some sort of spec document that's not up not, not up to date as as is we have a couple of projects that we're starting up and I've been trying to make some efforts but the challenges are sort of several fold. Um, one is I think LaTeX is no longer a viable, uh, you know, tool. It's, um, it's aging. I think the ecosystem is, is moving away from that. Um, although I, I do have to say I was really excited about the, uh, Clo talk. Yeah. At, uh, <laughs> at closure Conch. That was, that was fun. It was fun it was and it, crazy. It may, maybe the next word you were going to use. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, it was, I, I don't know if that, if if his intent is to you know fully re resurrect LaTeX, and right. I'm not sure that that's, I'm not sure it's 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 a tool that that's quite where the ecosystem has moved on to. So the places that we're exploring are are more in in Markdown like languages. Mm -hmm. um, and in fact, the tool that we're we've been trying to make work is uh, ASCII Doc, uh, and ASCII Doc uh, has the benefit of mapping to DocBook, and so you have you know, all docbook functionality and the docbook tool chains to be able to generate PDFs and HTML and so on. Sorry, I want to interrupt you because I want to remember to mention this because sure. I, I don't want to forget. Have you looked at the one in Racket? Matthew Flat, when he was on the show, mentioned it, and I'm, I'm spacing on the name. No, uh, send, send me a link if you find one. I will, but basically the idea there is that um, it's a fairly uh, textual language in the same way that like mark, markup, uh, sorry, markdown is. But it produces S expressions, like it actually is an X, S expression language. Oh, wow! Yeah, it's 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 definitely worth look. I did take a little bit of a look at it. Anyway, sorry, that's I don't want to sidetrack no. on that too much, but it's it, you fine. should you should check it out. I will. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for bringing it up. Yeah, so ASCII or DocBook rather has has a bunch of directions you can go with it. It's it's you know sort of the de facto documentation uh, language, and it's, you know being XML is easily parsable. So I have. About 20 lines of closure is all that it takes to, to take docbook generated from ASCII doc and extract um, you know, tables as, as maps. And once, once you have tabular data, you can build things like uh, state machines fairly easily and uh, workflows and you know, a, a number of forms of tabular data that, that you can turn into you know, different types of objects or, or you know, configuration groups. So you're, what you're, not, you're not trying to take your program and entirely put it into the documentation. What you're trying to do is capture the parts where you have some sort of, you know, it's, it's the policy and decision making. It's the, it's the, you know, arbitrary values or, or um, tuned values, um, the things that you need to explain why the program is this way. Those are the types of things that would live in, in uh, live specs. So we're hitting, we're hitting challenges with, with uh, ASCII doc. One of the problems with ASCII doc is that it's not a thing. It's several things. So there's ASCII doc, the Python implementation, and then there's ASCII doctor, which is uh, a Ruby implementation that uh, implements uh, a fairly large but incomplete subset of ASCII doc, and then goes on to implement a couple of other things. As we've learned with the uh, markdown slash common mark journey, uh, uh, an implementation is, is not a specification for a markup. Mm -hmm. um, you, you need a, uh, you know, a uh, well-defined parser. And 
So ASCII-DOC is, is presenting a number of challenges in that uh, domain. Uh, you also need something to make this useful. You need to you know, get organizational uh, commitment. And uh, you know, a lot of organizations are really married to like, passing Word docs around. Um, which is which is just terrible, and 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 you know you've got uh, Word docs being sent as attachments, and you know who knows where the most recent thing is, and you can't version control it, and you can't you can't really do much with it. I mean, but hey, it's XML. Uh, <laughs> barely. Yeah. Um, it it's it's still uh, I think uh, a challenging thing to bridge this into all environments. The thing that worked at SciCortex was. That you know we're a very uh, small engineering team at the start, and even as the company grew big, we we're running Linux on all the desktops. So we we're clearly you know several several degrees out of the norm for you know adopting you know more engineering oriented technology. I think in a larger organization, it's it's a lot harder to uh, both present the the tool and the rationale well and get the commitment. It definitely takes somebody near the top. To you know, top of the project to to say, you know, we're going to go down this path because you know it, we have huge value uh, for for being able to capture the specification in this way. So that's I think probably the the bigger part of the the uh, live specification story. Um, it is something that I I do want to uh, see if I can get a, a public library out there for. I don't I don't know if ASCII doc is is the the right thing. Uh, I am excited about CommonMark, but CommonMark. Uh, still defers to HTML for tabular data, which is is kind of horrible for um, doing tables of, of of any size or scale. Mm. That it may be that that's reasonable, but we'll have to see where common mark goes. Org mode. No, <laughs> Org mode does actually kind of have a spec, but uh, anyway, no. I, so no, this I, this is really really interesting. Do you have in mind like a sort of small example where? You know, let's take a, a little system, I don't know, a calculator program or something along those lines where where you could talk to me about what you would write, what you would put in the spec, what you would not necessarily put in the spec, just to help me kind of map it in my head as to what I would wind up with, and that might help me understand some of the benefits a little better. Right. So calculators, perhaps too simple, but we'll, we'll try that. So okay. if you've got an actual calculator, calculator implementation, we might want to have uh, uh, maybe different internationalizations of it. I don't know. Okay. <laughs> um, calculators. The problem with math math uh, notation is that it's pretty universal. Um, but you could imagine a, a program where maybe I want some some internationalization, and that that type of, of data mm. tends to be pretty. You know, we we often have inter internationalization files. Uh, you know, Python and uh, C both have underscore, you know, paren sort of. Uh, substitution type things, but you you might also change the layout, um, and that's that's not the sort of thing that's just a translation thing. You might might uh, specify you know here's here's the order of the buttons that uh, you know as we translate this from one cultural context to another, it might make sense to you know put the memory store and clear functions over here, and that's something that you could represent. You could represent the grid, or you could. Uh, ha have some sort of, of grouping that's specified, you know, at the spec level. This isn't a, a terrific uh, <laughs> example. Sorry, uh, you can use another one if you prefer. Well, yeah. So let, let's imagine some sort of banking or business workflow where we have maybe some external 
tax rules that we need to apply or some finance practices that we need to apply, you know, if, if uh, you know, expenses are above this, this uh, dollar threshold that we need to apply this other constraint or, or, or report it differently. Something like that, you know, dollar threshold is exactly the sort of thing you want to pull out of the program. You don't want it buried in the program. You want to have it separately. It's not the sort of thing that the programmer cares about. You know, we, we don't want to have to be the vessels to carry each, each of these business changes. If we could hand a document off to um, somebody who understands the finances and can go through um, and say, you know, these are, these are the rules, these are the you know, uh, thresholds for which you know, reporting has to happen this way or, or that way, then we can actually pull ourselves out of the loop. We can you know, implement the, wherever it has logic implementations uh, will we'll have to be involved. But, but as far as you know, making the choice of whether we go down this path or that path or whether where the threshold is, that can be removed entirely. Is that yeah, that's helpful. So it's like a so little bit better. It does. And so then the, the question I have is, all right, so so we've decided that we're going to capture um, these rules in a document. Like what kind of make it a little more concrete for me? I'd open this document in whatever editor I use, not Word apparently, <laughs> and, I, and I look at it and I see, I guess, a bunch of tables and, and, and maybe some pros before and after them. Or what is that? Am I hitting it right there? Or? Yeah, so you might have a section that goes down and you know talks about you know uh, some particular aspect of finance practices and you know is going to give the explanation you know according to you know tax code whatever we need to to report you know this this particular income under that category and so that's your pros part and and then you have a table showing the uh, particular accounting field uh, and you know what the threshold is. And uh, then maybe a third third uh, row of, of uh, how it should be reported. Sure, and, and so that's the sort of document that you would probably write anyway at the beginning, as you said, at the beginning of the project. Right, right, right. exactly. Right, but now you're going to feed it into some tool chain and kind of iterate and be forced to iterate on it. I think really might be the important part there. Right, right, and and you know if there's a change. The change happens in the specification, and the code that implements this gets that as a, as a side effect of of the spec being updated. Mm -hmm. um, I was just working on a project recently where we have these specs, and you know one of the problems with uh, Word docs is they're they're difficult, but not very well. And sometimes parts of the the spec were actually embedded uh, diagrams in there, and and uh, uh, other tables from other things, and so we didn't have a good way of, of getting diffs out of these. So we didn't know what the change was. So we'd have to go through the whole spec again, you know, from top to bottom to try to line up, you know, figure out what things needed to change on the software side. And these were usually things outside of of the mechanics of how the software worked. They they were you know different business logic things. The customer you know wants this to happen before that, or you know wants this to happen you know uh, ten times as often. And that shouldn't be a concern of the programmer. That should be an input to the program or, or something that the something that helps to shape the program, but, but is outside of it. Right. A, a parameter. Yeah. Yeah. So this reminds me a little bit, although I don't think the analogy is perfect, uh, with um, what was it, the Rails thing called Cucumber? Right. Have you... the, it's a, a testing framework for uh, behavioral-driven testing. Right? Yeah, right, where you write and I'm using 
once again using podcast air quotes here, you use uh, <laughs> English to write the tests, and the hope was that you would be able to um, better communicate with uh, you know the the business stakeholders who weren't necessarily doing the software level implementation. I'm, I'm what I'm struggling with right now is that it sounds like what you're describing is quite different on the one hand, but on the other hand, I, I I'm not putting my finger on how because I've had make really mixed success with the admittedly small amount of uh, cucumber that I was exposed to. Right. I have, I have vague memories. So it's BDD, it's behavioral driven design and it's, it's mostly constraints, right? These are, these are ways of validating that the program is behaving mm. and it's specified right. rather than You're specifying right. the behavior. Um, I think, I think it's also really awkward and terrible to read code that is, or sorry, to read prose that is, constrained to this, you know, parsable language that something like Cucumber can, can read. Mm. Um, I, I think what you want is, you know, real good human prose next to, you know, the structured data. It's, it's an, easier to, an easier separation to write something that's clear and descriptive and then, uh, you know, have, have the, the salient bits extracted on the side uh, right next to it. Gotcha. Yeah, that makes total sense. You said it as soon as you said it's really about writing tests and not about like you know, right, like does this program do what it's supposed to, not here's what the program should do. That makes that makes a perfect distinction in my mind. Yeah. Cool. Um so um do you so you so Aaron, you have, you know, however long it takes us to get this podcast out, you know, we'll probably put it out sometime <laughs> in the next six weeks or so. It's uh, a race. It's a race, that's right. You you will start cranking and you start cranking and we'll see who gets done first. Uh, no, so my question is, I know you're starting to work with the idea and you said you'd like to maybe get the idea out in the world. Do, do you have any any concrete plans to start um, making some kind of artifact or, or maybe a spec <laughs> that people could leverage in out in the world? Uh, or, or is this just, and that's, this is totally fine in my opinion if it is, is it just an interesting idea that you're hoping to explore? I have, I have work in code. I have like 20 lines of code that, that uh, is, is able to, in ASCII doc, it's, it's uh, very easy to uh, mark a table uh, with a, a class. Um, is that the term they use? It's a class or an, uh, some sort of, yeah, it is a class because it maps to like a CSS class. Mm-hmm. So you can, you can add a, a class attribute to a, to a table and you could imagine that you might standardize on a couple of different classes according to the different types of, of data that you want to represent then those classes can be used to identify the XML uh, tags in docbook uh, and then the closure code just walks the, the document and picks those up and you can emit them uh, a number of ways you can you can so some basic tables might just be key value things and you know that very obviously turns into a map and other tables might just be a pure list of things and, and that, that might be a, a vector or list of uh, values for things like uh, maybe a state machine uh, you, you have you know the initial state and then uh, transition and then the you know, exit state in tabular form, and so you can represent a state machine through you know either a single table with all the, the transitions, or you might reference uh, uh, several tables as as uh, separate parts of the state machine, which would allow you to to give maybe more explanation of pros around the parts or different groups to be able to specify what happens in you know the different states. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're, you have a certain amount of flexibility. Clearly, this is going to depend on the domain of, of the thing that you're creating. So um, if you, as, as in the Cycortex case, we're 
defining uh, we had a system on a chip and then in fact a, a complete system including module service processors and a system service processor that coordinated the whole system together so it was a lot of what we had was hardware and and, and uh, uh, network and system structure oriented but you also could have you know a business domain that more like the finance example or I, I think there are probably uh, some some programs where uh, the the number of business decision details are, are fairly small compared to the code base and this might not be a win but I don't think that that's too many I think that there's going to be a lot of domains where you know anytime you have have these you're either feeding in a large configuration file or you have but but it's a, it's a static configuration file or you have a lot of global variables or you have a lot of these you know lost values throughout the code where you're making decisions based on them that's an opportunity to capture that aspect because you know I think there's a tremendous value in annotating those and, and, and giving context to you know why we made this decision and very often those aren't things that, that the programmers care about you know if they put the value there themselves they were guessing <laughs> um, and uh, we really want to get rid of those uh, from from the code base yeah, so one of the other things that uh, you mentioned early on as one of the benefits is that you said this this spec kind of fanned out into like 20 different directions. Um, now, obviously, one place is into the data that parameterizes the applic application, the operation of your program, rather. But um, you mentioned other things like um, debugging. You know, we talked a little bit about Cucumber, where you could mm -hmm. actually presumably generate tests or drive tests. What, maybe you could kind of classify the, the set of things that in an ideal world we write this spec and and we get these n things or at least give us a sampling of more right. really so one of the things that that i have in mind going forwards is that i think you could for a number of the the, the types of things that you put into a spec uh, have templated uh, generators so you could have something like test check you know, generate through these are the things that we specified that we want to be able to handle. These are the types of ops that we can pass. These are the types of uh, values that we have. And so you can have generators that uh, would be used in, in your generative testing. Um, you could also generate properties as well, much in the BDD style Cucumber uh, sort of thing. And that actually, as, as I'm thinking about it, so Cucumber aims for these, you know, prosy sorts of paragraphs, but it might not be a bad idea to sort of split that up in a, a more tabular uh, format. And you might actually gain some readability. And I mean, it, it's cute and all that you can write English sentences. <laughs> but uh, I, I wonder if it might not be clearer and easier if it was you know, more tabular. Well, there's, I mean, there's existing frameworks, uh, test frameworks that do exactly that. I mean, FIT is a fairly mature, mm -hmm. one, old mm -hmm. one at least. And uh, even... Um, the the venerable and minimalistic closure test supports mm. uh, tabular testing through R. I mean, it's not quite what you're talking about, but it is tabular. Right. And if you really want to, uh, you can take the tabular data and you know work it back into a formatted English sentence. So if somebody wants to read a bunch of uh, English sentences instead of scanning a table, you know, more power to them. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's you could do a keyboard macro to do the same thing, I guess. But anyway, I can't say I see much point in that myself. But maybe I'm missing something. Well, cool. So this is very interesting, and I'm. Gonna, I think we're gonna have to check back in with you because um, I'm glad you came on to share it with us. But it sounds like you're kind of at the at the beginning of your path of exploring the potential for this, because of course 
experiments need to run in the real world, right? And it, it sounds like uh, there's a huge opportunity to, to do that. Now, I know you, you said you've got some working code. Did you say that you're actually using this approach on some of the projects that you're working on? Uh, no, at, at this point, this is this is still trying to, to gain traction. I think mm-hmm. the, the challenges are getting to a point where the uh, tooling is, is useful enough. So going back to the ASCII doctor, uh, which is the Ruby implementation of, of ASCII doc, um, has a very nice workflow. You download a single uh, package and uh, or maybe two, and, and then you're off and running. And it's, it builds beautiful documents, and, and it's easy to use. ASCII doc, the canonical Im- implementation, requires uh, carefully uh, you know, gathering up a, a whole handful of packages and configuring them properly and then generates really hideous-looking documents out of the box. <laughs> um, Spec-compliant, but still hideous-looking. So there's toolchain problems, right? So I need to go solve the, docu- the, the tooling uh, problems in front of this before I can get adoption because... Um, it's not going to fly across groups that you know already have habits around you know passing Word docs around, and you know maybe our our you know project owners may, are maybe less technical um, and and maybe intimidated. So we want to be able to offer them something that you know maybe is WYSIWYG or or uh, at least is is uh, solid enough and consistent enough that that they're not trying to be programmers to to create the documents. Mm-hmm. I, I would say that Psycortex had rousing success with this, so uh, the the concept uh, works incredibly well. It, it's it's uh, trying to to resurrect this and in, in, into a modern modern context, so not Perl scripts and not LaTeX, and maybe not chip fabrication, <laughs> right? And maybe not uh, chip and system fabrication, right? Well, that's an so. honest question, though. Like, do you think do you think that? Um, and I mean, I know you can't know this, but do you think there was anything about that? application that was particularly suited to this, or do you see it as being really quite general and it just happened to work there as well? Yeah, I, I think that perhaps the poster child domain would be something like chip fabrication where, you know, you've got tons of different address ranges and, and uh, you've got address ranges for the chip and for uh, devices that peers to the chip. You have uh, register mass and opcodes and, and uh, special magic instructions and so on. Yeah, that, that domain is is clearly you've got a lot of ranges of values, you've got a lot of single values that that absolutely needs a specification. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't live without it in that domain. But I, I think there's I think if we examine our code, there's uh, you know anytime you have have these defined values that uh, could be different, but you know are never different over the you know you've chosen them for for the particular behavior of your program. That's specification, and, and that's that's the type of thing that that we want to separate from our code base, um, both for testing and for highlighting that we have these values and explaining why they're there. So, yeah, I, th- well, I, th- I think there's there's plenty of other domains that would benefit from this. I agree. I mean, I just think about the work I've been doing for the last couple of years at RoomKey, and that's obviously a hotel industry um, website. You know, in some ways, a fairly I'm using air quotes again normal application. I mean, in the sense of I think. There's a lot of people out there that are building websites, right? Um, but mm-hmm. you know, we deal with multiple different hotel chains, and they have data feeds that come in, and those are in sometimes similar, but even when similar, differing formats. And I could well imagine wanting to have a doc that says, "Oh yeah, when the data comes in from this partner, 
you know, it looks like this and that we map onto the common format like this. But when it comes from, from this partner, it's different. Having a doc that explains those things um, would be super helpful. And there's really no reason why that couldn't be uh, done in the in the manner that you are suggesting. So absolutely, that's actually one of the domains where we had domain mapping of of data from one domain to another, mm. where we had these tons of specs. You know, saying this this means this in this context, and instead of capturing it in code, uh, you do so much better having it in some sort of data format that's that's uh, both uh, separate from the code and and able to explain the rationale and, and can be handed off to, you know, people with business domain knowledge. Yeah, cool. I definitely got to think about this more. So um, where can people, so I, I assume that you would welcome conversation or, um, you know, people who have done something similar and might have ideas or pointers to existing implementations of related ideas, all that type of thing. What's the best way for people to, to, get, to get hold of you and to maybe um, start a conversation about this stuff? Well, uh, I would expect this to appear uh, either in my personal GitHub or if we decide to uh, release this from the Lona Cloud group at Viasat, uh, the Lona Cloud GitHub, or they can just tweet at me, uh, 0x1b on Twitter. Um, <laughs> awesome. <laughs> I'm one of the, the very few elite uh, ASCII character. There's, there's only 256 of us uh, out there. Yeah. Yeah, you got to feel bad for the people over 127, though. They always get a raw deal. And below, um, I guess that's you, though, right? You're you're not in. Yeah, the, yeah. I'm that unprintable. Un unprintable. Yeah, that's yeah, okay. It's it's escape. Oh, it's escape. Well, that's one of the yeah. better ones when you get right down to it. Yeah, I was contacted by the guy who's Bell a while back. He thought it was cool that he also had. <laughs> that is awesome. So I, there's a couple of the things that I, I that this is interesting, but I want to talk to you about a couple of the things before we uh, before we run out of the time to do so. You, we were just talking a little bit, and you threw out a name that I was like, "Okay, it's a cool name," but we didn't, we just didn't have a chance to talk about it much. And I'm, I'm, I'm curious. So I wonder if you could enlighten me. Line boom. What's ah, what's line, line boom? Voom. Oh, voom. That's what it was. I wrote it down wrong. Yeah. So I presented on this at uh, Closure West this a uh, year year ago. Coming up on a year, yeah. Yeah, yeah, a year ago because. Um, uh, it was last last December was when we started writing it. So uh, Chris Hauser and I wrote. Uh, line boom to, to solve some of our problems and it, it seems to connect with uh, a number of other groups out there. Basically what it is uh, is a uh, mechanism to build dependencies from source for uh, line again projects uh, rather than fetching uh, artifacts for repo. And actually I should, I should say that a little bit differently. It does not, so if, if an artifact exists for a project, uh, we'll use that. But if it doesn't exist and we have Voom metadata, we'll go and we'll uh, clone the Git repo and uh, build the artifact locally. So why would you want to do this? Several reasons. One is you can be very specific about what version you want. So if there's a third-party project out there, Foo, uh, and the maintainer has you know, released version 1.2, uh, but he's been you know, building you know, adding adding commits, but hasn't hasn't released a, another version. But he's fixed something that uh, you want. You can point your project uh, at the Git version and use that unreleased, unsnapshotted uh, version uh, directly in your project. And it's and immutable. It's, not, it's immutable. It's not going to change. And and this 
helps in a number of things. So as you're moving in a you know small, I hate to use the word agile group, you're constantly integrating your changes. But if you have a, a CI system that's you're, you're waiting for your artifacts to pop out the backside, you have this problem. So I change you know project A and I commit it, and I want to change project B now that depends on the new version of A. I can't do that until uh, the new artifact is built. And so it needs to go through all of its testing and, and artifact generation before it appears in the artifact repository. However, with Voom, as soon as I make the git commit and push it, I can depend on it with the other project. And so we use this heavily. We have, um, I forget how many projects now, 70 to 80 different projects, and they all have Voom dependencies. And uh, as we commit new changes, we can move forwards very rapidly. This also solves a, a fundamental problem of uh, semantic versioning, and that is that semantic versioning doesn't branch. It's linear. And so if I have, if I wanted to have artifacts coming from another branch, uh, I would have to rename the project and then go through all of my dependencies and uh, you know, change the dependencies to point to the newly named project. But with Voom, I can, for one, any commit anywhere, it doesn't matter where it is, is a distinct thing. And so I can depend on that. And uh, the freshen capability of Voom, which will look for newer versions of a given project, uh, can be constrained uh, and should, should be constrained to follow a particular branch. And so it will only consider new commits on that branch. And that's nothing to do with freshen the data format. Right, this is F-R-E-S-H-E-N. Gotcha, okay. Right. Though I suppose you could point to a unreleased version of freshen the, the data format. Freshen, freshen, I don't know. You could do that, I guess, if you wanted to be cruel. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. So now is it recursive? Like if I have a dependency on a on a Voom, a Voom dependency that itself has Voom dependencies, does it traverse the, the whole graph? It does, but with a, an enormous caveat right now. Uh, so what uh, Voom currently does is it will uh, follow any immediate dependencies, and if they are, if an artifact isn't found for those, then it will uh, recursively run line Voom to, to fetch dependencies for those. The missing piece is that if you have a dependency that's satisfied by an existing jar and that dependency has a, a Voom dependency, you'll be in a context where you'll be relying on Maven's internal dependency resolver. And Maven, at this point, I haven't written a plugin uh, to do Voom dependencies for Maven. This is something that's uh, weighing heavily on my mind um, and, and something that I should do at some point where if, if anybody feels uh, deeply motivated to do this, you know, it would involve pulling out the, the core part of LineVoom's uh, dependency resolution, you know, the Git fetching and uh, jar building parts, and uh, put it into a uh, Maven resolver. It's it's a it's a chunk of work. It's not too too much, but it it, it definitely has some level of involvement. For for our purposes. Um, all of our, our dependencies are, are basically all top level. We're depending on our own things or other other th other third parties that are not using Voom. Uh, so the sort of top down recursion works, but that's something that's that's definitely missing. Needs to be done. Interesting, and it but right and it's also dependent on uh, on Linegan too, right? There's not a 
Yeah, at this point, uh, although Chowser and I have been having discussions about uh, what this would look like if we pulled it out with, you know, once, once we pull out the resolver, we could, you could imagine that you have like an NPM resolver uh, if, if mm. it allows for uh, extensible dependency resolving. Yeah, I would love to have Ruby dependencies and just because there's a lot of times where you're using something like Compass in a closure project because it's still the best tool for that particular job. Right. right. So we, we have talked a, a good bit about pulling these, you know, decomplecting uh, line boom into uh, a series of different tools, you know, something that can build line again dependencies or, or something that can build Maven dependencies or something that, you know, I, I think the interesting directions to go is could you make this work with boot or comma? Mm-hmm. And so definitely thinking about that. It's on the other side of a, a good chunk of work. So <laughs> sure. uh, interested parties can, can go track down. Uh, Lineboom, L-E-I-N-V-O-O-M, uh, lives under the uh, Lono Cloud repo, or Lono Cloud organization on GitHub. Okay, cool. Um, the other thing I wanted to ask you about was, uh, oh, yeah, so you're up, you're up in the, the northeast, right, New Hampshire area? Yep. Yeah, you guys have a really healthy uh, closure meetup group up that way. We do. Yeah, we have. Uh, in fact, we have a bunch of cognitectors: uh, Jen Hilner, mm -hmm. uh, Timmy Wall, mm -hmm. uh, Paul DeGrandis, and yeah. uh, Jonathan Claggett's also up here. He's a fellow Lono Clouder, um, as is Mike Spiegel, who's uh, another Lono Clouder uh, Biasat employee. But yeah, we've we've got uh, I think a surprisingly uh, vibrant group up here. Um, so about a year ago, Matt Oquist and I started the group, and we've been consistently about twenty people. Uh, which is is good both because it's as, uh, I think a, a less dense area than you know, major metro areas, and we've got some overlap with the Boston closure group, which is uh, a great group. Uh, Reed Draper used to head that up, and um, uh, it's it's still going well. So uh, yeah, we're we're planning our, our next meetup, which is uh, next this coming Wednesday. That we will not release this episode before then, but <laughs> yeah, well, that's true. Well, some some upcoming Wednesday. Uh, yeah, by the time this is released. Um, so sorry. So it's the like the fourth Wednesday of the month. Do I have that yeah. right? Okay. Yeah, typically. Yeah, we we adjusted it during the holidays, but um, we aim to have have some sort of presented content each each month. Um, but then most of the time, we try to spend doing some sort of collaborative exercise, and uh, we have a a collaboration environment that's it's built very similar, similarly to the uh, collaboration environment that we have at, at in the Lono Cloud group at Viasat. So we have a, a pairing server out on EC2 that everybody connects to. And this works really well for, for these collaborative exercises. So instead of everybody trying to you know, look over somebody else's shoulder, you know, and somebody, somebody has the screen and the keyboard in front of them, people bring their own laptops and they, they can connect to the pairing server. And everybody has you know, their hands on the keyboard and uh, is able to interact. And I think uh, the feedback that I've heard is that, that everybody feels really involved, everybody's able to contribute. And so that's what what we really aim for is is to get people involved at you know whatever skill level they have. Some people are really, really familiar with Clojure and some people are totally new to it. That, that sort of collaboration really works well. Yeah, and I gotta say, if you're listening to this and you're, and you're a relative Clojure beginner um, and you live anywhere near New Hampshire, you should get out because um, you know there are a small number of places in the world where you can find 
the collection of people <laughs> that are present at that meetup on a regular basis um, in terms of the closure expertise and history and, and that are set up to, to hang out with you and, and pair with you on closure. So definitely people should, uh, should go out to that if they can make it at all. Thanks for the shout out. Absolutely. Well, cool. So we probably should think about starting to wrap it up as much as I would love to keep talking to you. I think, uh, like I said, we are for sure going to have to have you back on because you're running this this absolutely fascinating experiment that I want to hear more about after you've had a chance to prove out some of the ideas. But um, we can certainly take as much time as we need to before we go to talk about anything else you want to cover on this episode. Sure. Well, that's that's good for me. I, I think uh, if, if you keep me talking much longer, it'll it'll uh, degrade into... <laughs> You know, uh, cat stories and and uh, well, well I mean, we didn't talk about that, space so. at all. I mean, you work for a satellite right. company, so That's we got to cover that one next time. That's I think that true. would be super cool. And I know you, I'm not I'm not myself a huge space nerd, although you know, I'm enough of one that when uh, when the Mars rover landed, I was like I, I like showed it to my kids. I'm like, you got to understand how important <laughs> this is and everything. But um, but I would love. To, I know that you are a, a huge uh, space enthusiast, so we could we could absolutely cover that one next time. But I think we'll save that one. Sure. Um, yeah. Sure. And instead, we will uh, we will move on to the the, the closer question that we've been using, which I really like, and that is a question of advice. Just the same way we asked you to share an artistic experience towards the beginning, it would be great if you would share because I sort of collect advice, advice that you like to give, or advice that you really valued receiving or, you know, have heard someone say any, anything in the category of advice, I'd love for you to share that with me and with our listeners. Sure. I, I don't know how well this will uh, encapsulate, but I'll, I'll give it a shot. Go so I think it's, it's really paralyzing uh, to be caught up in, in our uh, sort of cultural expectations of what smart people do and what dumb people do and, and, and that, that there's just one spectrum mm-hmm. of ability um, I think that that's a, a pretty tyrannical sort of concept. And as I, both through my own experience, uh, so personally I was, uh, by the, the force of my, my mother uh, fighting the school district, was, was simultaneously in the uh, gifted and the learning disabled classes, which is a unique experience in and of itself and, and not something that, you know, the school wasn't wasn't used to, uh, you know, they wanted to categorize you know, smart or, 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 you know, learning disabled there's there's a tremendous range of of different abilities and i i really feel like most people are not that far in total sum of of abilities i mean clearly uh there's some people who are maybe more dynamic or some people who <laughs> don't use their abilities as well but but that we're not so far apart if you consider the total sum of 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 our abilities and you know certainly there's room for effort and skill developed skill and uh, discipline and so on but there, there's there's a a real paralysis that happens when you know you think oh man you know I'm, I'm not smart enough to learn this or 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 just as paralyzing you know resting on on the fact of being smart i think that isolates you from all the other abilities that other people have you know recognizing that that uh something that you you may do well doesn't doesn't mean that like another person can't uh, uh, do something well in an entirely different domain. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. That's one of my sort of personal personal goals is is just not getting caught up in those those cultural notions of you know what what we're what we're smart at and what we're not smart at. Uh, it really impedes, uh, I think, uh, both our own personal learning and development, and and uh, I think it impedes collaborating because I think good collaboration comes when you recognize that you know there's there's things that I'm not good at, but 
man, this other person really can, can take off on. I think you're totally right. That's really, really good advice is to keep that in mind. I mean, the, I, a couple of things, if I can be allowed to just tack on that a little bit. One, one is there's actual science around the word smart and, and children and uh, how there are at least indications that using the, the term smart up to applying it to children, in other words, calling children smart, it, it actually decreases effort and ultimately right. achievement. <laughs> so that's yeah. a fascinating result. And the, the way I like to, to put it is it just as some, you know, as an alternate statement of what you said is that we, we use the word smart to indicate a vector, uh, sorry, a scalar measurement of something mm-hmm. that is totally a vector quantity. Right. right? Like where in this right. room am I? Seven. Well, that doesn't really, mm-hmm. it doesn't, you can't answer that question that way, but we do it all the time when it comes to this notion of intelligence. So, right. and it's, and I totally agree with you. It is, it is limiting and, and unhelpful in, in almost every context where we do that. Yep. Wow. So that's a great one. I really appreciate that. And I really appreciate your time um, uh, today to come on the show. I know I had to, I actually had to make you wait a little bit. I was on a, I was on a call and you were gracious enough to, to wait for me. So I, I really appreciate you taking the time and coming in and just super interesting ideas. I am absolutely fascinated to see how this plays out. So I really do want you to come back and talk to us, but, uh, but thanks so much for, uh, for coming on the show today. Thanks a lot, Craig. I enjoyed it a lot. I'm glad to hear that. And we will uh, we'll close here. We'll thank Aaron again and, and thank our listeners. This has been the CogniCast. You have been listening to the CogniCast. The CogniCast is a production of Cognitech Inc., whom you can find on the web at Cognitech.com and on Twitter at Cognitech. Our guest today was Aaron Brooks on Twitter at 0x1b. <laughs> awesome. Episode cover art is by Michael Parento. Audio production by Russ Olson. The Cognicast is produced by Kim Foster. Our theme music is Thumbs Up for Rock and Roll by Kill the Noise with Feed Me. I'm your host, Craig Andera. Thanks for listening.